The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, you know what time it is now? I do know what time it is. It is bonus episode time. It's not just any bonus episode, but it is one of our war story episodes, which are some of my favorite things to do because mostly it doesn't require either one of us to uh, ask questions. We just kind of we just let them go. Let just kind of say, tell me a crazy story. And then we leave the room. You know, we go play foosball for an hour. We come back. They've made some magic. (laughs) Uncoached. Yes, I'm right there with you. These are some of my favorites as well. I'm very uh, pleased that we've got another massive war story episode. Uh, We've got 11 this go around, which is phenomenal. Good Lord. Strap in everybody for some awesome war story fun. All right. Kicking off our war stories is one from Qian Tran. Uh, Here is her war story. I had a great life in New York until 9-11. And that's when I decided to become a filmmaker. I was really, really close to the devastation and I lost my apartment. All the windows were blown in and half the building caught on fire. We couldn't return there. I lost my apartment. I lost everything, and all I had with me was my Nikon and two rolls of black and white film. And that was really the life-altering moment for me. I quit my job at Deloitte and decided to pursue photography full-time. And two years later, I applied to film schools based on my stills portfolio, and I moved to the West Coast. And the rest is history. All right, that was Qian Tran, and next we have an awesome war story from Mike Figgis, director and inventor of the fig rig, Mike Figgis. This is a war story about um, a live mix screening of time code in Mexico City. I replied from London and said, okay, I need the following things. In order to do a live mix, this would say in about... 2005, something like that. I need the following items. I need a DigiBeta PAL machine. I need a DA88 multi-track recorder. And I need some kind of time code interface that's going to lock them together because it's based on time code, hence the name of the film. They said, fine, no problem, no problem. I checked three times, no problem. I'm on the jury of the Mexico Film Festival, so I get there and I... Um, I say, oh, let's have a rehearsal, you know, because it's quite complicated. I go to the cinema. It takes three hours because of the traffic in Mexico City. Get there. There is a huge problem. In fact, they haven't got a PAL machine. They've got an NTSC machine. But they said, not to worry, we've made a transfer. Fine. So we set it all up, and the time code will just not talk to itself. So we then start making these calls to London, to the Sony Center, to Los Angeles, saying, help, help, help too many cooks for the broth. There was about 15 technicians, all hysterical, trying to get the film to, you know, hold sync. I have to finally abandon the rehearsal, and they go, okay, you've got three days, sort this out. So in the three days, they report back, okay, finally we fixed the problem. So I said, okay, I still want to get there early for the screening. I get to the screening, and they say, look, and they turn it on, and it's in sync. Or is it? They're going to turn it off. I go, keep running, keep running. 
We're a minute in and already I know there's like a, you know, a two, or two three frame drift. So I know it's 95 minutes and I know we're going to be in deep trouble. So again, on the phone, London, Los Angeles, the Sony help, blah, blah, blah. And then the audience start arriving outside and the festival director goes, there's, you've got a full house and they're all getting really angry because we're keeping them waiting. I have this amazing woman who's helping me, who's my technical assistant, and she, I know she's bright and she's not hysterical. And we discover that on the DigiBeta NTSC machine, there's a button where you can advance one frame. So I said, okay, get me a piece of paper and a pencil and a calculator. And so I basically made um, a table. Um, I said, okay, let's run it for a minute. We run it for a minute, and I said, no, now let's calculate how many frames out we are. And I said, okay, so that means every 30 seconds, really, we need to very quickly advance two frames. Okay, now I'm doing a live mix, so I have music on a separate track from CD. So I have to make sure that whenever I do that, it doesn't, I, we don't go to a blank sound. So I said, okay, and it's like landing the plane when the engines have got or the or system's gone. And I say to this wonderful woman, are you ready? And she goes, I'm ready. Bring the audience in and we start. And we get through the entire screening on this basis and doing a live mix on the basis of advancing single frames. It's just one of those moments where you kind of go, I'm, I cannot lose my cool. I have to actually fix this. And they're not going to fix it. We get to the end and the festival director, this crazy woman comes up and said, ha, huh, all that fuss and there was no problem, eh? <laughs> I just said, I want to strangle you. War Stories. All right, that was Mike Figgis. I really enjoy that story. Uh, up next is cinematographer Dan Lauston. I have a big sister, Aneta is her name. And she, um, you know, she's a real big sister. She's one of those girls, you know, you better do what big sister's telling you because she knows better. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, she's right. So um, I came out of that still photography school and I want to be a National Geographic photographer. And I was like 21 or 20 and, you know, really difficult when you're coming from a small country like Denmark to break that ice. So she said, um, I saw an advertising for the Danish film school in the newspaper. She used to try to look at that and said, sister, I'm not, I don't know anything about cinematography. I'm a still photographer. I want to do that. That's what I love. She said, don't be like that. Just go, just do it. So I applied to the school and my brother-in-law was helping me to make the appointment and I put some pictures in and I said, you know, I'm never getting in, not even to an interview because it's a high-end school and, you know, everybody that wants to go to that school is people that have been dreaming about being cinematographers since they could walk. And that was not my case. So I went to the interview and they liked my pictures and we have a long discussions about who is your heroes and, but I didn't knew anybody. So I, first of all, I don't think it's important to have heroes. I think it's nice or very important you find your own style in life and um, follow your heart. So I said, guys, I don't have any heroes. I just think lighting is very important for me. It was like when those days as well, and this is now. Thank you very much. You can, we are going to, get in touch for you and I went to my sister and said why did you put me in this situation because I feel so stupid when I was sitting there because I didn't know anything about movie making and she said well well let's see what's happening and a month later they got a letter you know welcome to the Danish film school and of course the first year I was a black chief there because I didn't know anything you know if you have to make a pan I've never looked into the film camera my whole life and I was together with those people that have been dreaming about being cinematographers all the whole life. Um, but that was like a nice true story. So thank you, sister. 
war stories. All right, so that was Daniel Lauston, and now we have a blast from the past, from the early days, the pre-Cambrian days of the Cinematography Podcast. It's a war story from Abe Martinez. Taking a camera along to another country is going into the unknown, but also there to capture and tell stories. When my wife and kids and I, we sold our house in LA, moved to Kenya. And as soon as I get there, I shoot a movie. And after I shoot the movie, we began looking for a place to live. Me being a, a cameraman, I had to find a place that can house and shelve my cameras. So it was very important that maybe I have a little office or a little safe place in Kenya to lock up my gear. And we went to how everyone else looks for houses in Kenya, is that you can look up on the wall at the grocery store. So we looked up on the wall, we found a place to live, and we went to go look at it. Monkeys used to come to the lawn and to the yard, and we found a house, and I was ready to make a deposit, but my wife said, you know what, this is not our house. There's a house that would sit with me, let's just wait and see. So as we're sitting there talking at the grocery store, I look up, I see a house sold for you know, a third less what we were looking for. So I said, let's try this. It seemed like it's too good to be true. It's, it's a three bedroom house at way cheaper than we're looking at and it's for rent. So we hop in the car, driving uh, just outside Nairobi to a place called Karen. We pull up to the house and it was a beautiful home on a big sprawling land, greens and, and even there too, monkeys would show up uh, to the lawn. There's a cow walking around. It was like, almost too good to be true. We found out it was a one big house, six or maybe eight bedrooms, and it was chopped in half. Now the lady showing me the house was a lady named Winnie. Basically she cut the house in half, and she lived on the back side, I lived in the front. And she asked me what I did, and I said I was a cameraman, and her face dropped. And I was just like, what, what? She, she told us she was a, a widow. Well, her face dropped because she goes, you're a cameraman, so was my husband, who just passed away. She goes, in fact, the place that you're looking at used to be our film studio. He used to keep his cameras down here, and she showed me into the basement where there were shelves where he used to keep his cameras. He left Germany as a freelance filmmaker, and he came to Kenya to work on the movie Out of Africa. She goes, come around to my side of the house. As she takes us around the corner, I see three large Steinbecks. I see rolls and rolls of 16 millimeter film from like the Congo War and from Vietnam. He was a war cameraman. I also saw boxes and boxes of slides from Leica. She was throwing these slides away, these precious slides. As I picked up the slide, I looked into the light, I saw the slide, and I saw an old Mitchell camera with a monkey sitting on top of the camera. I saw pictures of him shooting in Malta in various movies color charts, there was a uh, frame and focus charts, there was a slate that was rescued in the jungle of a burning plane that he survived on. There's Steinbeck's 16mm film of footage of war from the BBC, uh, projectors, lighting kits, old lenses that were sitting just beyond the door, just beyond the wall. There was about a billion stories that were to be told of this little ancient archive. My wife looked to me, she goes, this is the house where we're gonna move. 
And that was uh, Abe Martinez's war story. Thanks, Abe. You were one of our first and uh, still phenomenal story. And he works with my friend Ed Sanchez a lot now. He works with, with all kinds of people. That guy's a busy guy traveling the world. All kinds of people, including Ed Sanchez, <laughs> who is a friend of mine. So uh, you, you say that now, but is he really your friend? Is anyone anyone's friend? <laughs> all right. Up next is a war story from Bill Wages. I got to go do an interview with Bob Gilcup. Mm-hmm. who is a photo editor of National Geographic. So this guy is a photo editor of photo editors. I took my portfolio in there, and he's very carefully picking the photos up and asking me questions, you know, and looking at them, being very careful with them. I spent every penny I had to print the portfolio. And he said, well, son, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, Mr. Gilka, I want to make documentaries for National Geographic. His face turned red smoke came out of his ears and he said where's the decisive moment in that a monkey can do that have you lost your mind don't waste your life doing that and he started throwing the photos all over his office finally the phone rings and he answers the phone ignoring me so i run and i pick the photos up put them in the in the portfolio and i'm I'm trying to get out of there and just as i got my hand on the doorknob like a scene in a bad movie he goes i'll give you a job on the uh, children's magazine And by this time, I'm shaking like a leaf, and I go, well, let me think about it. And I stepped in the hallway, and I'm just sitting there, white as a sheet, shaking. And this guy comes walking by, and he goes, did you just have a meeting with Gilka? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, come into my office. So we walk down the hall, around the corner. We go into his office, and he said, well, let me see your photos. And he's looking at them, and he goes, oh, this is nice work, but you know, you shouldn't bring ding and dented prints to show people. And I said, well, they weren't five minutes ago because he was throwing them all over the place. And he said, well, tell me what happened. And I told him, and he said, oh, that went really well. And I went, no, it's the most horrific moment of my life. No, it didn't go well at all. And he says, you've been offered a job at National Geographic. He said, everybody starts at this children's magazine. Here's the deal. Let me tell you what it means. He said, you will leave the middle of January and come back the middle of December. You're on the road the whole time. God knows where. He said the divorce rate here is 100%, and you don't make any money. You make money off of your portfolio in their catalog because they have a huge library and they sell photos that way. And then he said, well, son, what do you really want to do? And I figured I didn't have anything to lose. And I said, I really want to go to Hollywood and make movies. And he went, then what are you doing here? Get up and leave. He said, you will take a job here, and the next thing you know, it'll be 30 years later. Go to Hollywood and make movies. Don't waste your time here. He's still a friend to this day. His name is Emery Kristoff. He was the last staff photographer at National Geographic. He's the one that took the photos of the Titanic. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. So that was Bill Wages, now uh, a, one of, uh, a guest that we talk about a lot on here, one of the funniest people we've ever had, a war story from Larry Fong. So I had been shooting commercials maybe for 10 or 15 years and really enjoying it. At one point, I think I was shooting a steakhouse commercial. And we were blocking the scene, and I realized that there was kind of a problem and that we are on the wrong side of the line, or maybe the eye line was wrong or something. So I suggested moving the camera over, and it looked slightly different from, you know, the storyboards that were there. 
And so I can't remember if someone from the agency or the producer, I don't think it was the director, but they said, um, hey, can you just shut up and shoot the boards? It was really hard for me, so I remember I had to, to take a little walk soon after that and go outside and get some fresh air. And I thought, you know, my opinion's not valuable, and I kind of had to reevaluate like my career and how I got to this point. Because I remember I went to film school to learn movies. I've been enjoying commercials a lot, but something's got to give. The next day, I got a phone call, and it was about doing a TV pilot. And I'd been avoiding TV because I didn't want to get locked into too much of a time commitment, but it was a, a just a pilot. The voice on the other end of the line was J.J. Abrams, and it was a script called Lost. And even before reading it, I said, I need a break. Yes, I will do it. When I first met J.J. Abrams, he was about 12, and I was a few years older, and we both liked making movies. We made Super 8 movies and eventually made some together. But, you know, it was a dream to be in the film industry. We really didn't know if it would happen or not. After film school, I was doing a lot of commercials, and he started doing his TV, and we both had a measure of success in our own way. So I get signed on somehow to do this pilot, and we're finally shooting some months later in Hawaii, and it's the end of the day, and we call rap, and then JJ and I look at each other, and then we just realized it's, what, 20 years later from when we were doing Super 8 films together, and we're here doing a TV show together in Hawaii on this beach. And we just looked at each other, and we hugged, and we just laughed, and I remember we were just falling on the ground laughing hysterically, and people just thinking we were insane, but at that moment we realized, you know, that dream had come true, and we were doing it and having fun, and... It didn't hit us till at, just at that moment. But that was my first long-form, you know, legitimate uh, project, which of course led to my first studio movie shortly thereafter, 300. So I'm lucky that to have, you know, gone to film school, done music videos, commercials, TV, and movies. War Stories. And that was Larry Fong's War Story. Uh, up next is Vanya Schernel. Early in my career, I think I only have done uh, four or five uh, projects, I noticed that uh, I got so exhausted after each, each film that I would just get sick. The next day after we rap, I would get sick. And it was uh, something I expected. I knew that uh, being on so high on adrenaline for, for, for weeks, um, and then when it all ends, the, the, my body just says, okay, it's over, now we're going to bed. And I shared this with my uh, assistant, a Corsican man, uh, Piero Colonna. Uh, we, did, uh, we were doing a, a small movie in Vermont, and I told him how this happens every time to me. When I finish a project, I just have to go to bed, and I'm, I'm, I'm sick for a couple of days. And he said that he knows a perfect cure. He says it's all about how your adrenaline drops all of a sudden, and you have to have some really amazing experience immediately after you rap, uh, and it'll keep it keep you healthy. Uh, so I was like, I asked him what was his uh, uh, proposal, and he said, well, we should go and uh, and go skydiving. 
the next day. After we wrap, we, we should all go skydiving. I said yes, and we went the whole, basically the whole uh, camera crew from that film. We went upstate New York uh, and jumped out of the plane together. And <laughs> it really worked. I had a, like s such a strong experience right after we wrapped that uh, it kept me. It kept me out of the bed because I forgot all the stress immediately. As when you're flying, when you jump out of a plane and you're falling down to earth, you forget about all the all the stress uh, from the from the shoot. So now, since then, I know that every time I, I finish a project, I have to I have to plan to have a really amazing experience, either either traveling to a new country uh, or do something really, really uh, amazing. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. War stories. So that was Vanya Shornal. And now here is an amazing war story from uh, from Rachel Morrison. So I think I was 20, maybe 21. And I got my first chance to PA on a, on a real feature. And not only that, it was one of my heroes, Maddie Lee Petit, who at that point hadn't done Requiem. Nobody else knew who the fuck he was, but he'd done this movie Pie, and I was obsessed with him. Of course, I'm trying to get in the camera department. And of course, it's nepotistic, and it goes to the nephew of a producer who never, I'm sure, touched camera again. But I spent my entire time kind of following the camera department around like a puppy dog. And finally, I think the last day of the film, Maddie's like, do you want to load a Mac? And I was like, terrified, but hell the fuck yeah. I don't know what happened. Like, I, they showed me 6,000 times how to do it right, and I think I just panicked, and I totally flashed the Mac. And then I was faced with... Do I tell him? Don't I tell him? What the fuck? And I, I, it was, I guess it was downloading because they'd already shot it. Like it was not a, okay, we can throw out the bag and just start fresh. And I was just like gutted, devastated. My cinematography career was over and I decided I was going to tell the truth. And I told Maddie and he was, you know, not thrilled. Thankfully, I think it, it came out okay, and maybe even, like, I think he made some joke about how flashing was good for that scene or something. My dream coming off this film was to ask him to sort of mentor me. I couldn't even, like, face him again for another 15 years or something. As a result, I never had a mentor. This all kind of comes back to Black Panther, but because of my shitty experience flashing this mag for Maddie Boutique, I never asked anybody again to, to mentor me, and therefore the biggest set I'd ever been on was my own. So when I went on to Black Panther, not only had I not ever shot anything that big, but I'd never shadowed anybody. So I literally was walking onto this set like completely blind. And it all comes down to my inability to load. And that was uh, Rachel Morrison's War Story. And up next is Linus Sandgren. I'm Lino Sangren, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. You know, before I was a cinematographer, I worked um, on set in other positions, and I worked a few times uh, as a spark electrician to um, uh, this great Swedish gaffer called Uffe Björk. 
he was um, he was Sven Nyquist's uh, gaffer in Sweden. He did Fanny Alexander with him and many other movies. And what's great with Uffe um, Björk is that um, you know I think about him almost every day I work. He was this interesting man who had um, he was a gaffer, right? But he had a, a blue vest uh, that carpenters use when they're you know carpenting they have like nails and stuff in their pockets they have all these pockets so there's this blue vest with all these pockets and in his pockets he had actually nails and he also had a hammer which is kind of unusual for a gaffer what was fantastic with him is that he he was a man who did a lot of simple solutions and quick simple fast solutions because in sweden you know you don't have so many people in the crew. On one film he actually worked alone as a gaffer without her, you know, without any electricians. With this um, hammer, you know, and the nails, I was always wondering like, why does he have that hammer and the nails, you know, but then he comes into a, a set one day and, a, and he shot in a, like, I believe it was a 12K uh, HMI through the window. And then he comes in with a poly, right? And he puts it up in the corner of the room and he goes like, here's a nail. Here's the hammer, and he goes bang, and he hammers the nail right in the wall of the of the location, and just like on a location, it was, you know, the time when you could sort of destroy the sets a little bit. But um, the funny thing is, like, and then he was like, oh, it's gonna hang there, it's hanging there, oh, that's great. And then when the scene was over, the poly obviously almost fell down, but he it was a great way of lighting the scene in a quick way. He used sort of his more like an emotional way of working than perfectly technical, but. Uh, very great. I think he's the only gaffer who actually has a, who actually had a hammer, you know. But I think of him a lot of times because his his approach to things is uh, was very simple, you know, and it really helped me in my work, you know. So he's a great mentor to me. But he he passed away uh, in the 90s. Actually, when I worked with Lasse Hallström, we uh, he worked a lot with him as well. They were good friends, and um, and we talk about Uffe a lot, you know. It's it's amazing how people can make so much impact on, on us, you know. War stories. That was Linus Sandgren, and now we have Stefan Schupek. So the first feature film that I worked on was uh, Russian Ark, and it takes you in a 90-minute uninterrupted Steadicam shot through uh, 300 years of Russian history. It was uh, quite a huge um, challenge, this project. And uh, I was, uh, as part of a camera team, walking with a Steadicam uh, with a camera through uh, this shot. It's a three and a half kilometer Steadicam shot. During the filming, my task was actually to, to maintain the communication with the whole crew uh, while we were doing the take and, and actually set the exposure of the camera. So I was basically pulling the iris um, all the way through in a continuous flow to, to kind of um, adjust for the exposure differences uh, in between the different places. And it was really a hard challenge because uh, there were so many exposure changes all through the, the shoot that I started out with a list and taking light meter readings and I just could have never followed that up. Then we came up with the idea that a cinematographer and creative, supervi creative consultant of the film band, uh, Fischer, he would walk one room ahead with light meter and would give me all the light readings one room ahead from the place and I would just uh, adjust these exposures on the go as we did the shot. 
in case we would get into a shot. I mean, first we had lots of rehearsals and things that where we would just um, uh, train our abilities to hide from the cameras. There was one whole path for the Steadicam. We'd just move around through space and we ha had to make sure that we will not be going to be caught in frame. Uh, and on top of this, I had to wear a costume of a French aristocrat from the 18th century, because if I got in shot, uh, at least uh, I wouldn't have to be painted out. And it was the director's idea to do that, um, Alexander Sakurov. He himself, when we asked him, well, why don't you wear a costume, he said like he would never, he would never, of course, not get into the shot of his own film. And the funny incident was then that actually he ended up being in shot uh, at one moment for a few seconds and we had to paint him out. And it was quite a funny situation that actually he himself ended in shot and we didn't. And besides that, it was really, really interesting to focus just on the job that I had to do because we were just uh, surrounded by this amazing locations, amazingly uh, costumed actors. And it felt like Alice in Wonderland, like this journey through this uh, time and space. And it hardly felt like being part of a film. It was really hard to kind of focus on the actual work we had to do. And not to forget that this isn't real time journey. War stories. That was uh, Stefan Chupek. And for the conclusion of our war story episode, here is Maddie Libatique, War Story. So Bradley Cooper and I, we um, traveled to London. And we were going to go do the Glastonbury Film Festival. I mean, the Glastonbury Festival for music. We wanted to get the sort of the iconic crowds for the movie. I mean, we had shot already at Coachella and Stagecoach. We had staged stuff at the Greek Theater. But he, because of his personal experience and having seen that crowd, he really wanted to place Jackson Maine in the world of Glastonbury. And it really was important to have him sort of in a setting that people recognize so that he was a real character. So we went to Glastonbury uh, just to be able to place him amongst those flags, amongst the mass of people. And uh, we were staying in a hotel in London the night before we were going to travel to Glastonbury. We were sitting next to Lars Ulrich, of, uh, the drummer from Metallica. And we, we had, you know, we thought we had 10 minutes in between two acts. We were following, I think, first aid kit and going into Chris Christopherson, oddly, at the main stage of Glastonbury. You know, I had uh, set it up where I wanted a 40 millimeter and a 75 millimeter, literally brought only two lenses to this thing. So I uh, was a waste time changing the lens and recalibrating, so I had two cameras. But I was gonna operate both. I was gonna do one take on the 40 and one take on the uh, 75 anamorphic. It was sort of telling my tale, and we were talking about it with Bradley at, uh, at the bar at the hotel, and Lars was like, you know, if you need me to operate, I can. And I took pause, I'm like, wait, you want to operate a camera? It's like, I could operate a camera. I'm like, uh, I'll, you know, just if you need help, I'll, you know, I'd gladly operate. I'm like, what? So I was like, wait a minute, this could be cool. I mean, this is the only time in my life I'll be on the same stage as Lars Ulrich. So I, you know, I said, I, I'll think about it. Yeah, maybe, yeah, cool, right, whatever. And we, we get to Glastonbury and it's to go, get go time. And um, we find out we have three minutes between both. So I'm like, Lars, uh, you're on. I'm gonna do the first take on the 40, and uh, after that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk over side stage, and I'm gonna give you this thing like it's a guitar, and I'm gonna take the other one, and you follow me out. Just don't bump into me. And uh, the first thing he does is go to his left, and I go to my right, and he bumps into me. But I'm on stage operating uh, Aeroflex minis, 
with anamorphic lenses, uh, Bradley Cooper singing in front of a bunch of people who can't hear him, and Lars Ulrich and I are on stage together with cameras. I'm like, this might be the best moment of my career. <laughs> war Stories. All right, so that was uh, War Stories episode four. Four. Re- revenge of the war stories. This time it's personal. Like we should we should do them like the Jaws movies. <laughs> Leprechaun in the Hood. Uh, yes. <laughs> war stories in space. Uh, that's right. That wasn't there a, a Friday the Thirteenth that took place in space or something. So. Uh, you are clearly thinking of Jason X. Yes. Thank you very much. There's also, that... but I was making a Leprechaun in space joke. Oh, but that's sorry. okay. <laughs> it's all fine, man. I, I couldn't. Isn't there a Sharknado joke in there too somewhere? Uh, some somewhere, I, uh, yeah. Revenge of the Sharknado. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I mean, I think I think that if we did it like uh, like Jaws movies, which brings us back to the shark thing, uh, four right. would be uh, War Stories: The Revenge. This time it's personal. This time it's personal. All right. So uh, hey, this is a bonus episode. So uh, don't worry though, we have another full length regular episode coming up right away. And here it is. No, it's not right now. Maybe. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.